1076, Santa Barbara's 14th Annual Writers' Conference presents tape number eight, Charles Schultz. Yeah, I'll uh, do a little tap dance. No, uh, I'll just jabber while you're seating. We had, um, we had a story the other day that used the word very, everything was very interesting, it was very big, it was very, 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 and um, we use that a lot in speech, we shouldn't use it in writing, should we, and uh, it was like the, the word up, but you got to use the word up, how about that word up, we all seem to be hung up on up, we put up with use up, come up, butter up, line up, punch up, and belly up. Houses are opened up, lighted up, warmed up, cleaned up, and closed up. Motors are fired up, gassed up, and charged up. Boats are speeded up, slowed up, tied up, and laid up. If we are mixed up, we must hurry up and shape up. <laughs> or, we'll be, or we'll be fouled up. And heaven help us, we drink up with up. <laughs> And if you think of other examples, don't call me up. I'm up the wall with up. Uh, just as I drove up here, I came up a one-way street the wrong way, and a guy shouted, up. Uh, <laughs> well, I've taken up enough of your time. I think I'll up and introduce, um, oh, heck, I give up. Um, uh, thank you. I want to say a word about tonight's program. I heard several people say, well, I'm not going tonight because um, I'm not interested in, in film writing. Well, I scheduled Barbara Jampel, and we were lucky enough to get her, simply because Tuesday is kind of the, the slew of despond we found. There's a big sag, and I, I don't know if you've noticed it, but my class sure noticed it in me. Uh, there's a sag that comes, we're settled down, and some of the excitement's over, and we've heard so damn much about writing that I thought that it'd be good to have a, a night off tonight and see, see some pictures. We've, so many of us have seen these National Geographic specials, and they're, they're marvelous, and especially the, the, the apes and chimpanzee sessions of Jane Goodall. And, uh, I have not seen the film on on how they made them and so forth, and I think it should be fascinating. I'm looking forward enormously. So even if you're interested in, not interested in films, I think you'll enjoy coming. Now I'd like to uh, say one other thing that somebody had some money, their purse stolen out of a, uh, a workshop today, and they found the purse without the money, but so, I don't know, uh, no place is safe anymore, I guess, so just kind of watch it. Charles Schultz, because when I've introduced him over the past dozen years, and I steal all his best lines, and uh, he gets up, and the poor guy, I've stolen them all, because I've, I'm such a great fan that I can remember almost every panel. 
uh, over the years. And uh, one thing I, I thought, uh, Burton Rasco said, what no wife of a writer can ever understand is the writer is working when he's staring out the window. And I thought of the first time I interviewed Sparky Schultz uh, in his office, and he told me a secret that whenever he hears footsteps or someone's coming, he immediately grabs a pencil and starts working, and they say, oh, I didn't want to bother you, you're working. He said, what they don't realize is I'm working my hardest when I'm looking out the window. So uh, I knew you'd understand that, being writers. Now I'm going to introduce our own Mary Lee Zdenek, who then introduced Sparky Show. Thank you, Barney. In 1982, I flew to Santa Rosa, California to interview the creator of Peanuts. And we had lunch at that famous ice arena where I met a soft-spoken man whose voice as a writer, as an artist, is recognized in every literate country of this world. And he has a demeanor of kind of down-home simplicity, but I encountered a man who is brilliant, complicated, and fascinating. His sense of humor has helped make him famous, but it's his sensitivity and his vulnerability that has enabled him to create these characters who come to life and with whom we can all identify so easily. Now, I've been told that it's not professional or not particularly appropriate to be too adoring of a person you interview. And that's true. One shouldn't. But I am. And I can't help it. He's terrific. Please help me welcome Mr. Charles Schultz. Sparky. left a couple of books of her poems published poems in my studio and I was telling her yesterday that at least once a month I go over and pull one of the volumes down come through them and read some of the things that she's written because I think they're so wonderful I've always thought that it was entirely conceivable that Hollywood or Sports Illustrated or somebody could send somebody like myself up here and pose and you'd never know the difference so uh, I'm going to draw a picture here, but I want to apologize in advance because this, the texture on this chalkboard does not really take the chalk too well. So if it comes out too light, and those of you can't see it from certain angles, don't let it worry you, but maybe afterwards you can ask somebody in the front row to explain what it was. But uh, I'm drawing this just to show that I'm, to prove to you that I'm not a fake. <laughs> Of course, according to what holidays happen to be uh, running and shows we have on TV and things like that, we get a lot of neat letters and sometimes crabby letters, but here's kind of a funny one that uh, we received last month when my book, um, this book came out, I'll show you, talk to you about it later, 
This kid writes and he says, Today I found a surprise at the bookstore. I see that you've authored a book. You don't look 35, Charlie Brown. I tried to read it, but the store clerk came around and threw me out because I didn't look like a customer. That hurts. Last month I received uh, an offer from some investment firm which is going to be running a series of ads under the title of Staying Power. And uh, I think some of them already, there might have been one in the Wall Street Journal recently, I'm not sure, because they did one with uh, Isaac Asimov, and they did one with Patricia Neal, and one with John Wooden and we are all supposed to write a short essay on what they call staying power, how you manage to keep on doing what you've been doing for so long. used to be that I would give talks to young cartoonists and people like that on how to get started, but how to get started doesn't interest me anymore. What I want to know is, is how you keep going, and that's the sort of thing that I think about quite often. I've had people come up to me, uh, like a young man recently at a, at a big gathering, and he wanted to know how he could get started drawing a comic strip. I said, well, have you ever drawn one before? No. What kind of cartooning have you done? Well, not really any. Uh, did you go to art school? No. And uh, I'm getting older, you know, and the older I get, the more sarcastic I get. And uh, <laughs> I... Uh, I don't suffer these things gladly like I used to. And so in my sarcasm, I've developed a new line. So I said to him, well, I have a suggestion. <laughs> Why don't you go down to Candlestick Park this Sunday afternoon and ask them if you can play quarterback for the 49ers? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no one wants to start at the bottom drawing for their church newspaper or modern mechanics or uh, uh, the small magazines and sell for $2.50 or $5 or something like that. And they all want to start off like Gary Trudeau and have 500 newspapers and be rich and famous overnight. But that doesn't interest me. What interests me now is what I had to try to say in this essay about staying power. So I've been thinking about it, and I did write the essay, and I sent it in, and I don't know if they liked it or not. I think the thing that convinced me I wanted to do it uh, really was that they're going to send uh, Joseph Karsh around to take uh, each of ours, uh, our portraits. And I just want to meet Mr. Karsh. I don't care anything about the essay, but uh, that convinced me. If he wants to come all the way down from Canada to take my picture, well, that's fine with me. So uh, I thought about staying power. And one of the first things that occurred to me is that if you're going to be in something for a long period of time, you had better be in a profession that is noted, noted for longevity. And certainly comic strips, I think, beyond almost any pop art form, will certainly accommodate longevity. Popeye has been around for, I don't know, 60 years, something like that. Gasoline Alley is still going. Gasoline Alley was going back, uh, I think Skeezix was born in 1922 when I was born, and yet Gasoline Alley is still going. If you do a reasonably good job, a comic strip is almost impossible to kill off, and all you have to do is look at Nancy and Sluggo, and that will prove that. Now, you can't kill Nancy and Sluggo, you know. They just keep coming around. 
and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to be involved then in a profession which will accommodate uh, a long working time. We're also fortunate in comic strips, I think, that um, they, they can be read very fast. Uh, they really can't bore you too much because I think uh, the average reading time of most comic strips is anywhere from 4 to 16 seconds. And if you're bored reading something in four seconds, then uh, it's your own fault. You don't have to read, you know, you don't have to read all these comic strips. There's a lot of them on the page, and you can just skip on to something else. So that's also to our advantage. We have another advantage, which is mixed with um, a little bit of anger. I think a lot of cartoonists feel that they are not recognized enough. Uh, we don't really get the publicity that other pop art forms do. And yet, also, it works in our favor because we are not blasted by critics and reviewers all of the time. Comic strips are in the paper every day, and uh, no one virtually pays any attention to them at all. We, we are never reviewed like the latest stage play or even the latest songs that are written. There's nobody there to tear us down and destroy us. So that, that's a big help. Uh, editors just don't seem to care. As long as nobody's writing in complaining too much about the strip, then they'll just leave it in. I still think, too, that the joy is in the doing. It's an old phrase, but I'm convinced that the joy is in the doing. And if you're going to do something for 35 years, every day, day in and day out, Sundays, Memorial Day, July 4th, and just every day, you have to come up with something, you had better like what you're doing. Uh, not too frequently, but I do have people drop into the studio now and then, and they like to see where I work. I think um, I think they, they they believe they're going to see Disney Studios or something like that of a, a whole row of guys sitting at a drawing sitting at drawing tables, but it's just me sitting in a room all by myself. And they look at all the books around on the wall, and then they look at the drawing table, and they invariably say, "Is that where you draw?" And I said, "Yes, that's where I draw." And, uh, and then they say, "Really?" <laughs> as if this is a, a, a table that's set up just to, to show people that I really work off someplace else in, in a darker corner. You know, really? And then the, uh, there are always two questions asked of cartoonists, where you get your ideas and the inevitable, how far ahead do you work? Well, when I tell them that the syndicate deadline is about six weeks in the daily and 12 on the Sunday, for years people have been saying, gee, you could work real hard then, couldn't you, and just uh, take a couple months off. And I used to uh, let myself receive those statements till one day I suddenly realized that you don't work all of your life to get to do something so you don't have to do it. And uh, I don't draw as fast as I can to get ahead so that I don't have to draw anymore. I love going to the studio in the morning. I love my daily routine, routine of getting up and going down to the ice arena and having breakfast and going to the studio, and I can hardly wait every morning to see what the mail has brought, to see what new projects we might have. And uh, I was asking a man out at the golf course recently what he would really rather do than anything in life. He says, well, if I were retired, I'd like to play a lot of golf. And I said, no, I've thought about it too. And I like playing golf, I like playing tennis and hockey and things like that. But I said, basically, when it comes right down to it, I'd rather sit and draw a funny picture than do anything else. And I think that leads towards staying power. 
I think the quest for improvement, uh, of course, is very important. Uh, it would be good if I were to be out uh, doing a lot of life sketching. I knew an old-time cartoonist back in Minneapolis years ago who was a great believer in life sketching. Draw from life, he said. Draw shoes, draw tables, lights, people's clothing and things like that, and always draw from life. Never cartoon anything that you don't know how to draw realistically, which I think uh, is, uh, is good advice, and it certainly should be taken by a lot of the people that are drawing comic strips today, because we have a lot of miserably drawn comic strips out there today. But I don't find myself uh, out doing a lot of life sketching, but I find that I have developed a rather annoying habit, which is drawing with my eyes. And uh, even at this very moment while I'm talking to you, I am observing how a certain panel of wood back there in that far, far room, how one panel comes forward and the other sets back in the perspective of them. And if I look down, if I'm talking with you, I will be observing how your shirt collar forms and how the wrinkles in your sweater may fall. And if your head turns, how one ear moves back and the other comes forward. And uh, sometimes it's the sort of thing that I would love to be able to stop doing, but I don't. And uh, <laughs> uh, I think it is probably the next best thing uh, to life drawing all the time. It does help me, I'm sure, because I, I retain these observations. A comic strip is not the greatest thing in the world. I, I still don't think it's a pure art form because um, we have to do what editors say. It's becoming more and more difficult because of the shrinking of strips. We don't have the room that uh, cartoonists had years ago where they, they had uh, panels which ran the entire width of the newspaper. Sunday pages uh, were the entire page of the newspaper. Of course, they had to work a lot harder than we do. We only have four tiny squares now, and I've noticed that recently some of the comic strips have turned into gag panels. I noticed that Johnny Hart very frequently just has one long panel, and that's it, and I'm sure he can draw that thing, I, I will wager, in no longer than uh, about eight or nine minutes. So it's, it's an easy job if all you want to have is an easy job. But if you want to get better at it all the time, then it's a hard job. And I think uh, this is the secret of, of always trying to, to better yourself. Uh, I think I've become more fussy the last two or three years about ideas than I ever have in 35 years. I looked at uh, a batch of old discarded strips the other day, and uh, I must have had 15 or 20 of them there that I had started and then put aside because I thought to myself, it just isn't good enough. I could send it in and the syndicate is not going to say anything, nobody's going to complain, and no one would ever know the difference, but I would know the difference. It's just not quite good enough. And there are what I call um, slumps which, to which the creator is not even uh, aware. And, and I can see it. It's what I call non-gags in comic strips. Every now and then I will read something that someone has done, and it, it's not only not funny, it's just nothing. But the cartoonist didn't realize, because I think you go along and uh, all of a sudden, maybe once every three or four months, you hit a shallow point, and you don't know uh, that what you have drawn is simply not funny. You've lost your ability for that uh, short period of time to be able to judge as to whether or not what you have done is funny. And this is rather frightening. And so I, uh, I become very fussy about what I send in. 
Uh, there's something here by Perelman that I remember reading here once before, but I wanted to read it this afternoon because uh, it parallels what I believe about drawing a little thing like a comic strip, which I said I don't, uh, I'm afraid is not pure art. Um, real art, I suppose, is something which speaks from one generation to another. And I've discovered that very few comic strips outside of perhaps Crazy Cat and maybe uh, three or four others really speak just as well to our generation as uh, as it did to other generations. But real art is difficult to define anyway, but in the long run, does it really matter? Does it really matter if what you were doing is art or not? Uh, as long as you're making somebody happy with it, and this is important. But I, want, I like, uh, and have always been consoled what, by what S.J. Perelman said. He said, I don't believe in the importance of scale. To me, the muralist is no more valid than the miniature painter. In this very large country where size is all and where Thomas Wolfe outranks Robert Benchley, I am content to stitch away at my embroidery hoop. I think the form I work can have its own distinction and I would like to surpass what I have done in it. And that's the way I feel. Um, Peanuts is not war and peace. It's never going to be war and peace. But it's the best thing that I do, and as long as I do it, I think, to the best of my ability, then that's all that I can ask. I've uh, listened to a few talks here the last couple of evenings and afternoons where screenwriting was discussed. And uh, I was amazed at the at the two people who both admitted that they had never written a screenplay before. And I've written one screenplay, and I knew so little about it that I uh, had to write to my friend Harry Morgan of MASH, and I said, send me a, a television screenplay so I see what one looks like, because I don't even know what they look like. We had already sold the screenplay. Uh, all of my television things, of course, are produced by Lee Mendelson. And the animation is done by Bill Melendez in Hollywood. And there was a series called the Peacock Series on NBC. And the people asked Lee Mendelson if by any chance he would have some kind of a children's show uh, with live action that they could put in this series. So Lee says, yeah, well, Sparky's had an idea for a couple of years that he's been talking about and I think we could do it. So we roughed out just a, a one-page outline of what the story was about, and they bought it. Now I was about to be condemned to writing a screenplay, and I didn't even know what they looked like. So one evening, I finally realized that I had to get to it, and I took an attorney's pad, one of those yellow page pads, and I went into a small room we have at home, and I sat down, and I started writing the opening scene, and uh, pretty soon I had finished the scene, and I looked at it, and I took it into Jeannie, and I said, what do you think? And she seemed to like it, and I said, I think this is pretty good. <laughs> uh, I didn't know I could do it, but I think this is pretty good. And I went, ahead, I went ahead and finished the whole thing, and we did film it. Now, I have one advantage over some of these people that have been talking about screenwriting, because fortunately, we have built up what we have done little by little over a period of years and I am one of these lucky people who has total control over what he does. 
I have a syndicate contract now which gives me total control over everything that we do. Uh, I can see every product that is put out in the market. I can draw any comic strip I want. The syndicate cannot editorialize me. They cannot uh, criticize anything unless it becomes, uh, in their opinion, vulgar, is going to be offensive to somebody or destroy all of our friendship with editors. But even in the filming of this, it was called The Big Stuffed Dog, and it ran a couple of times on NBC. And I was able to be able to be right there on the set as we did all of the filming. And I, uh, I didn't interfere very much. I, I'm reasonably smart enough to know my limitations. And I didn't butt in on the director and the cameraman and, and all of that. But I do remember at one point we were filming a scene with Abe Vigoda. Remember him? Uh, wonderful, wonderful actor. And he was supposed to be a carnival man running a little dart-throwing concession. And I wanted to make sure, I, I, they had already done one scene, and it wasn't quite the way I had visualized it. So I went up to him, and as I'm walking up to him, I'm thinking, who am I now to walk up and tell Abe Vigoda, who's been acting all his life, how I want this line read, how I want, what I want him to do. So I said, Abe, if you forgive me, uh, this is what this should be. And he said, oh yeah, great. So I'm glad you told me. He said, I appreciate that, because I know uh, how it is for, for writers. I know when, uh, when they write something, they want it spoken just in a certain way, and I was astounded. <laughs> and it sure helped to be able to do that. Last night, uh, no, it's the night before, when Norman Corwin spoke, I was extremely uh, impressed by him, and it, it brought back memories of something which happened. Uh, several years ago, Jeannie and I went over to Wimbledon, and on the way back, we, we went to France, and I tried to look up a chateau. It was called the Chateau of the Bad Neighbor in France, where I was stationed during World War II for a few weeks. And uh, I was so moved by the experience of going back to this chateau that I thought we should do a little documentary on this, of what it's like to return to some place that you haven't seen for 30 years and which meant so much to you at the time and uh, involve so many of your emotions. So we did this little documentary, and it ran on PBS, and it won a, a small award of some kind. But I knew that that wasn't quite enough, that there was still something more there. Uh, we also visited uh, Omaha Beach, and the mere fact of going back to these places uh, was something that, that really was emotional to me. And so I thought there, there has to be a story here of some kind where uh, Charlie Brown and the gang and all of that go over to France as exchange students. And we did a movie of that, and it was uh, a pretty good movie. It still runs around on different shows at different times. It was called Bon Voyage, Charlie Brown, and Don't Come Back. And uh, <laughs> uh, that was Lucy's statement, of course. But there was still something more there, I felt. And so I, I always was thinking about this or what would happen if these little kids lost their way as they were proceeding from the, uh, the chateau where they had been exchange students and then going back to the airport, if they got lost and somehow ended up at uh, Normandy Beach. And I thought about it for a long while. I just couldn't get the thing to fall together. And then uh, one night I was in the hospital after having heart surgery and I was lying there at 3 o'clock in the morning and I couldn't sleep and you know your, your chest kind of hurts. and I. I was thinking about this thing, and all of a sudden the phrase came to me, what have we learned, Charlie Brown? And so in this television movie, which eventually uh, won a Peabody Award, 
Linus and the kids are down at Omaha Beach, and Linus sees the entire D-Day invasion uh, in his mind. And he comes back up onto uh, the upper territory where the others are, and he tells them all about the invasion and all about D-Day. Then they get in the car and they drive up through Belgium, and he says, stop the car. And he explains to them about the poppies, and he recites the famous poem in Flanders Fields. And uh, it's, it's very emotional when these little kids say these things just right. I'll sure get mad at them when they don't say things right. But uh, he recited the poem in Flanders Fields, and then he turns to Charlie Brown and he says, what have we learned, Charlie Brown? And uh, it was a, a good little movie. Now, I thought that this was something totally original. And it just proves that there really isn't anything original, because maybe a year or so after that, I was reading an article about Norman Corwin, and uh, I heard him mention this again the night before last. He said he had had to do a radio show back in 1945, and one of the phrases that he used was, what have we learned? So uh, it was kind of shocking, but you, you learn to put up with things like that. <laughs> I, did, uh, I see cartoonists now, uh, younger fellows, drawing things, uh, ideas that I literally drew 30 years ago. But this is just the way uh, creative minds work, of course. I drew a cartoon once where Lucy was chasing a balloon that she had let go, and she kept saying, please come back, you know, you dirty balloon. Uh, and then she'd yell at it, and then she'd uh, pray for it to come back, and then she'd yell at it. I was reading an old Out Our Way cartoon. Remember the cowboys years ago? He had lost his horse in the middle of the desert. He was doing the very same thing that Lucy was doing to the balloon, but he did it 30 years before I did it. So um, those things do happen. Uh, I'm not really, I, I don't consider myself, myself really a writer, but I sure have sold a lot of books. <laughs> You won't believe it if you were to go into one of the bookstores here in town uh, and look around, because you won't find any of my books there. I was just to one this afternoon, and they don't have any of my books. I have sold 300 million books, and yet they don't have any of mine downtown. Uh, uh, we were talking about the mysteries of publishing, and uh, that's a mystery to me. <laughs> Peanuts runs in now in 2,040 newspapers around the world. So it would seem to me that if the publisher just put one book in every bookstore in the country, we'd still have quite a sale, but uh, this is another whole thing. But I wanted to show you how someone who really isn't a writer can still have a lot of books published. <laughs> uh, our first books, which have been out now for a long while, my first book was published by Reinhardt, and it sold one dollar for one dollar. Eventually editors say, well, we've got to change the books now. We've got to make them bigger. We've got to give them new covers or something. And this is the, the last of the reprint books. Uh, the way of the fuss budget is not easy. And this has uh, a lot of the dailies and the Sundays which have been in the paper for uh, this past year. Now, the idea is not only to draw the comic strip for the newspaper, but then you get it reprinted and then you reprint the reprints. <laughs> so Fawcett puts out two of these, which really is uh, one of these. They cut it in half, and they sell two of these. And these are sold, of course, in airports and things like that, and Fawcett does very well with those. 
And then if you're smart, you can take the same gag lines and you can use them on the date books that determine production puts out, and you can put them on sweatshirts, and you can put them on all sorts of things. And uh, I think no one gets more uh, more value from one line that he's thought of than I do. And uh, <laughs> one of the books which I am most proud of, because I did the whole thing myself, they're not... Uh, this is the second one, it's called Things I've Had to Learn Over and Over and Over. Uh, and I got the idea from an ophthalmologist friend of mine who said, I just thought of an idea for a book called Things I Learned After It Was Too Late. <laughs> and I said, that's a great title, I'll do a book uh, with that title. So I picked out some of my favorite things from the strip, and then I redrew the panels and made them into just single panels. And this one is, uh, says, always turn out your closet light, Otherwise, you'll get up some morning and find you can't start your closet. <laughs> that comes from being raised in Minnesota where you couldn't get your 1934 Ford to turn over. And here's Snoopy in Woodstock, and uh, the caption is, those who believe in the balance of nature are those who don't get eaten. <laughs> And here's Snoopy and a couple of his little Beagle Scouts, and they're out in the woods. Uh, they're looking up at the moon, and Snoopy says, it's not difficult to find your way in the wilderness if you remember that Hollywood is in the west and the moon is always over Hollywood. <laughs> so uh, uh, this is what I call a pure book, and I did it all by myself, and I like that book. Every now and then, uh, the publishers decide that they should put out a book of reprints of a certain subject. So we've done two on baseball. This is called Big League Peanuts. And uh, the strips are awfully small in there, but there's a whole bunch of them. This is the second one. We did another one called Sandlot Peanuts, was just about, which was just about baseball. And we've done one on the classrooms where um, Peppermint Patty and and Marcy have their struggles, you know, poor Peppermint Patty. She's the one who was uh, answering this test question. Uh, let's see, what was it? What happened in, in 1812? And she says, well, I don't know, is that a, a date or an address or something like that? Uh, I have a hard time remembering those things. <laughs> now, every television show that we put out has to have a book, and so this is the the Random House television book. So one time I must have had six or eight different publishers doing things, uh, different types of books. Our arrangement is that each publisher has the rights to do a certain type of book. Random House has the rights only to do children's books, um, the television books and other children's books which they do. I myself would never in the world think of trying to write a children's book. I, I just wouldn't know how to do it. And I am slightly annoyed when people come up to me want drawings for their children or buy books for their children. I always want to say, why don't you buy it for yourself? <laughs> I, don't, I don't draw for, I wouldn't know how to draw for children. I really don't. I do, well, I suppose I draw for myself, which is really about all any of us can do, isn't it? Write for ourselves and hope that everybody else will like it or as many people as possible. Anyway, we have all of these books like this. One day, two men came out to me from Random House 
and they started to talk about a new publishing program which uh, United Feature Syndicate had decided they were going to do. And they started talking about the Linus books. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And they said, well, uh, you know, uh, we have a contract that you're going to do four children's books a year. I said, I don't know anything about it. You don't? No. Well, we have the contract out in the car. Uh, the president of United Feature Syndicate, who's no longer the president now, uh, had uh, actually signed a contract with Random that I was going to do four children's books for them a year. I said, that's crazy. I don't know how to do a children's book, and I don't want to. I want to draw comic strips. And so out of this, then uh, Random House didn't want to give up their rights, so they came up with this series of books, which have been a tremendous seller. Charlie Brown's fourth super book of questions and answers. Now again, uh, I don't have to do these. They are required, however, to use my drawings from the strip. So all of the drawings in the book and a few comic strips are either taken from the strip or are reprints of, of mine. No one else uh, does any actual drawing of the characters, but they do fill in the backgrounds and things like that. And they do a beautiful job of writing these things uh, on all sorts of subjects. And it's a, it's a nice quality book. It sells for $6. <laughs> on my 25th anniversary, I did a beautiful coffee table book called Peanuts Jubilee, which eventually came out in paperback by Ballantine for $8. I think the coffee table one was $32. And I, I wanted to try to tell how it all happens, and I discovered that I couldn't. I discovered that I could talk about things in my past or uh, things that happened to me, but when it comes right up to that fourth panel, I simply cannot explain how I think of the little punchline or things like that. It's just beyond me. And so uh, I could only go so far with that book. Now, when I reached my 35th anniversary last year, I thought I would do a book called Looking Through the Scrapbooks. I have a whole bunch of scrapbooks like encyclopedias, and I thought I would go through these scrapbooks and I would find little interesting things that have happened to me down through the years, and I would read the articles or I would be reminded by a photograph of something. And then I discovered that it really wasn't that interesting. That, uh, <laughs> Uh, I could tell of the time that maybe I hit a few balls with Billie Jean King or the time that Sam Sneed said, asked me something, or, but it, it really wasn't that, that interesting. So I gave up the whole idea and then uh, started to think more about it. One night I began to write down a few memories. And so I came up with this book called You Don't Look 35, Charlie Brown. It's in hardback and it's in paperback. And it has a few little thoughts, little memories in it about my grandmother and my dad's barber shop and things like that. And uh, it reminds me of uh, well, the opening sentence is a cartoonist is someone who has to draw the same thing day after day after day without repeating himself, which I think is a pretty good definition of drawing a comic strip. Uh, there's another little anecdote in there about uh, when I was in Las Vegas once and a friend invited me to speak at a school which I would normally never do but I felt I owed him a favor and as we pulled up to the school the kindergarten class was just getting out the teacher said before uh, you leave could you just if we ushered these kids back in the room would you just draw them one picture on the chalkboard so I said sure I've never drawn for little tiny kids before so 
They all sat down on the floor and looked up at me as I turned around and I drew a fast Snoopy just like that. I turned around and I said, well, what do you think? Little kid stood up and he said, can't you draw a better one than that? <laughs> I draw without my glasses on. Now I can't see you at all, but I can see what I'm reading here. Uh, this book is composed of uh, very short essays, and some are two or three pages long, but from these essays uh, have come years of ideas from some of these things that have happened to me. And this is a little essay which is only uh, about 12 lines long, and it's really the basis for all of the Valentine ideas that I've drawn about Charlie Brown down through the years. You know, he never gets a Valentine. And he opens up the mailbox and he looks in and he says, nothing echoes like an empty mailbox. <laughs> when I was in the first grade, the teacher put a Valentine box on a table in front of the room. It was two days before Valentine's Day and we were to bring to school the cards we wanted to give to the kids we liked. Obviously, there were some I liked more than others, but because I didn't wish to offend anyone, I made out a list that included everyone. My mother helped me select all the cards and I took them to school the next day. Classrooms are pretty big to a first grader, and it was a long walk from where I sat up to the front of the room where the Valentine box waited. Everyone could watch you as you walked to the front of the room and dropped each card through the slit on top of the box. I couldn't do it. I took all the Valentines home. <laughs>